All right, everybody. The uh, gospel lesson for today is Luke 3, 1 through 6. In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip, ruler of the region of Ituria and uh, Tractonitis, and Licinius under the rule of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked shall be made straight, the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Uh, so before I wanted to uh, get started, I wanted to thank Dan last, uh, last week for calling me out on a detail that I got wrong about the purity laws regarding birth. So I got the relative length of the waiting period wrong for boys versus girls, and it doesn't really change uh, too much of the substance of what I said, but I wanted to, you know, crack the record. So thank you, Dan. John in the wilderness is the uh, big theme for today. And specifically, what is radical about John and John's message? And right off the bat, there's a bunch of stuff that's really weird about it. Like, for example, why does Jesus, who's supposed to be, you know, the prophet to end all prophets, need a prophet to precede him? What is, what is Jesus needs someone uh, who himself is the fount of all holiness and purity? What does he need someone to baptize him? Uh, and we'll talk about this soon, especially when we get to the baptism. But there, there's something beautiful happening in the narrative of the gospel in Luke that is about Jesus both being uh, the new Israel and simultaneously being a redo for the old Israel. So uh, what the old Israel gets wrong, Jesus gets right. Uh, A prophet calls Jesus out of the wilderness, Jesus follows, and uh, does the will and word of God. So uh, in Jesus and in this relationship between Jesus and John, there's a bunch of really interesting, uh, potentially fairly radical stuff going on for how we think about (coughs) religious practice, uh, think about our ethics, think about all that stuff. And, you know, the thing I want to look at today is, the idea that John and by extension Jesus, what they're out to do is uh, nothing less than to turn the ruling world order upside down. What that means for us is that a Christianity worth its salt can't simply be the handmaiden of the powers that be. Uh, to be a Christian is to realize that all the powers in the world are corrupt and fallen. Uh, the world is filled with a bunch, as we've talked about before, of counterfeit sovereigns. And the point of the kingdom of God is not only to judge them and to find them wanting, but is to call us to be and to do something different. We'll get to that, though. So we'll jump right into the text here. In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, uh, Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea, Herod, Galilee, a bunch of long and incomprehensible names, yada, yada. During the uh, high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. What does it remind you of? I mean, it's the second time in less than, well, in only three chapters that Luke has started out a a big story about a big person in the history of the gospel by essentially giving us a list of all the people who went before. It's almost like he's got opening credits for every big part of the story. And this one serves a pretty similar purpose to the one that we saw uh, at the birth of Jesus. There's this kind of, you know, hall of fame, or if you're a 
you're a good Jew, hall of shame for um, people who are in power over Israel and dictating the terms for uh, Jerusalem, dictating the terms for the Jewish people. So here we have, you know, a Roman Empire emperor. We've got a governor who is a particularly brutal guy who was appointed by that emperor to run local affairs. And I don't know, like Herod and company are mentioned. And, you know, those, those we've talked about before, those guys were like, I like to say they're Vichy Romans, but that may not resonate with everybody. So they're Roman collaborators, right? They're in, they're in office, and despite the fact that most good, God-fearing Jewish folk would have been you know, significantly against Rome and what Rome stood for, these guys were basically making their hay, making money, and uh, keeping power by doing what it is that the Romans asked for. So you know, if you think about it, this would have been a situation that would be really tough for any one of us to be in if the people that were ruling you were installed by someone who is different from you and the people, you know, imagine the people in your church uh, uh, that, that, that ran the church or ran the local government were people who were working to keep that empire that you hated so much in power. And then, you know, there's this mention of Annas and Caiaphas who were running the show in the temple. Now, we know a bit about them. They, re- they appear a little bit later in the Gospels. Anybody remember? Caiaphas is easy, but Annas? Actually, Jesus is brought first in the Passion narrative to Annas. And then to Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest at the time, but Annas was like his father-in-law. So it was like uh, this weird little uh, family deal where the emperor Quirinius had appointed Annas, and Annas kind of had these scuffles with Rome, and so uh, he wasn't really uh, acceptable as a leader anymore. So uh, Caiaphas is his son-in-law. So Annas is kind of, it's like, uh, I don't know, it's like the emperor and Darth Vader. Annas is behind the scenes kind of pulling the strings as Caiaphas makes his decisions about what happens for the empire. And the other thing we know about them is they were Sadducees, which Trey has talked a lot about, uh, you know, the kind of cultural politics around the Sadducees and the Pharisees. We'll see if any of the kids are paying attention. Do you remember what the Sadducees' big deal was? Anybody? There's whispering. Cal, do you remember? So the Pharisees, they were the guys that were like, we need to establish purity and laws of purity. And the Sadducees were different because they wanted to emphasize the... Starts with T and ends with Empel. Yes, exactly, the temple. Good job, Isa. Thank you. So they wanted to emphasize the temple as the kind of heart of Jewish worship, and they believed that it was the kind of proper center of, of worship and of, of, of Jewish life, and so for them the temple was central, and so Annas and Caiaphas were like relatively rich dudes who were pretty cool with Rome and who were spending their time running the temple and you know talking about how important it was that everyone give to the temple and that they support the temple and all that stuff. So what, why all that background? But for me and from the, the scripture, well, here's the thing. that The bigger thing to take away from this setup of the story of John and ultimately Jesus is not just that there's a bunch of Roman sympathizers that were in control, but if you read very carefully, especially those verses 1, 2, and 3, these guys represent more than Rome. Okay? They represent the power of the ruling political, social, religious orders at the time. So here's this emperor. He's got a global reach. He's sitting in the most powerful city in the world. He's installing his own folks in uh, Jerusalem, which was the most culturally significant city for uh, ancient Jewish folks. He's appointed these high priests to be the temple. And those guys dictated the heart of Jewish practice. So here's the thing. When, when the story, as Luke tells it, says that the truth of God was revealed to John in the wilderness. And he does it after this big, long list. What I think 
Luke wants us to hear is this. We would have thought that the truth of God would go directly to the temple in Jerusalem. We would have thought that the new king that is the king of the new kingdom and of the world, that announcement, it seems like it should have been more appropriate that it was made in Rome. But you should hear here a little bit of an echo of the announcement to the shepherds. You should hear here that when the truth comes uh, to God's people, when God's people are called back into a new kingdom, well, when God's announced, uh, there's some dirty, ritually unclean dudes sitting in a dung-filled sheep field, and that's where God comes to announce the coming of Jesus Christ. And when he has the first prophet who announces the direct coming of the king and of God, he doesn't pick some guy in the temple or in Rome. He picks this like dirty, weird, bearded, hair garment wearing, locust eating, seemingly crazy guy who's wandering around in the wilderness telling people that they have to take a bath. That's the thing is that when God's truth comes, it doesn't necessarily come from the places that we expected. God's truth doesn't come from the places that we think that it ought to come from. Oftentimes, it comes from the farthest farthest margins of society. Here it's not the city, but it's the wilderness. It's the place where truth is revealed. And the Greek word here is pretty darn good for this. The word that we have as wilderness in Greek is eremo, and it means the desolate places. The empty places. I love that God charges John to begin his ministry in the empty and desolate places. Not the glitzy centers of power. John isn't looking to like be an influencer or a thought leader or to expand his Insta and Twitter following. He does exactly the opposite. John goes to the place that doesn't seem to matter, to the place that everyone else seemed to overlook. And John goes there and says, not only will God's truth come from this place, but that place is the place that is worthy for the revealing of the new kingdom. Because guess what? The new kingdom is not about the old centers of power. The new kingdom is not about the places that used to matter. The new kingdom is about the entirety of the world. So when John announces the coming of Jesus in the desolate and in the nothing places, it's a declaration that in the kingdom of God, every place and every person would matter. And that we wouldn't expect, but that it doesn't matter if we expect that God's truth would come from the places where we're not looking by the people that we don't think matters. And that ought to change the way we think about how we receive God's truth. I mean, think about it. John is basically pulling a Moses here, isn't he? He's, he's calling God's people a new kingdom out. He's, he's, uh, he's uh, kind of uh, in line with the prophetic voice in Isaiah 40, which is he cites uh, directly here below. And it's a challenge from John and, and from uh, the prophet in Isaiah earlier that Israel ought to see the wilderness, the desolate places, the empty places, not as places of desolation, but as places of hope. So Isaiah 40 says, comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed and that her sins have been paid for. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, 
Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight the desert a highway for our God. Every valley should be raised up. Every mountain made low. Uh, the rough plain, the ground shall become level. The rugged place is a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed for, and all people will see it together. See, God loves calling the children of the kingdom from the wilderness because God is no respecter of human persons, of human aspirations, of human enterprises, or of human institutions. And this reference in Isaiah 40, which is woven into John's words here, is about a new Jerusalem. It's about the idea that people ought to be comforted by the fact that in this new Jerusalem, everyone is called to be a member of a new kingdom. The new Jerusalem is announced from the desolation of the desert. And the beauty of it is that the new Jerusalem, which is targeted towards what? All flesh that will be seen by all people. That new Jerusalem is not only a promise, but guess what? It's also posed against the literal Jerusalem. That's the thing that's amazing is that the revelation of God in the person of John is not just saying, ah, here's the new Jerusalem that's like really a continuation of the old Jerusalem. It's saying that, hey, the old literal Jerusalem doesn't matter anymore in the same way because there's a new Jerusalem and that new Jerusalem is made up by a new uh, kingdom and it is led by a new king. It is constituted in a new temple, which Christ is in his very body is the new temple and locus of our worship. And it is a, a, a new Israel that is not defined by the same lines of who belongs and who doesn't, but instead that every person, all flesh in the world are invited to it. That's the beauty of it, is that God has called for this new Jerusalem that is made up of all flesh, and he's called it into existence on the very outskirts of the old Jerusalem as defined by maps and borders and walls and temples. So it starts out as being kind of subtle at first. Hey, here's the new Jerusalem. I didn't announce it in the old Jerusalem, but in the end, it has the subtlety of a jackhammer. God is smashing the order of religious power and of political power to bring into being a new kingdom, one not defined by the rules of earthly power, a new abundant Jerusalem that grows up out of the desolation of the desert that runs by different rules and the rules are different, especially in terms of how people relate to the law. That's the key thing. Verse three, he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley should be filled, every mountain and hill made low, for the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. What does this mean? What does it mean? John is running around the backwoods of Jordan saying, be baptized. And, and folks would have known about baptism from a couple of places. There was a practice of ritual washing that you might have undertaken if you were going to convert to Judaism, and there were I don't know, like there are a ton of messianic groups running around the ancient Middle East that prescribed all kinds of stuff if you wanted to figure out the way of getting right with whatever you thought or whoever you thought God was. And so washing was kind of a big deal. It's like the modern version of listening to Caleb or whatever. It was something that people thought could uh, make them right with God again. There are all these different ways of thinking about water and washing out there that were religiously popular. But here's the thing, and, and if you've been around resurrection for a while, you may have heard this theme before. The thing is that why is it that those folks had this real uh, interesting almost fixation on water? Why water? I mean, if you lived in the desert, you could understand why folks would be obsessed with water. And, 
you know, if we're thinking about religious practice, you can imagine why it is that people are worried about what's clean and what's not clean. But, like, think about it. Almost all the old creation stories that you can think of in the ancient Middle East, what is the moment where creation is founded? It's where someone, like, gets water together. You know, like the, I don't know, the Babylonian myth where, uh, uh, you know, the, the waters are uh, held back. The Egyptians were about uh, creation being uh, in, in kind of shaping up the Nile. Even the, uh, the, you know, the version of creation that we have, have in the Bible has this weird thing where it, uh, what happens is that the water is separated with the land. And you can see why, because like, you know, almost all ancient cultures have this story of a flood that like destroyed everything or waxed the world. And if you lived in the desert and there was quick rain, you might have seen floods. And like water was this weird thing for people who lived in the desert that was kind of about you needed it for life, but it could ruin everything almost instantaneously. So it's weird for these people who are running around to say, hey, the answer to your problems is to spend a lot more time with water. Washing was a big deal. It was a big religious deal, and it was a big deal for these new communities. But here's the thing. Water had all these different meanings, but the real meaning for John is what? It's repentance. Going to the water, which is about finding life and confronting death, going to the water is about repentance. And we, uh, we've talked about this word a lot. The word is metanoia. Anybody? Metanoia? Eh? What is, anybody remember? To be given a new mind. See, it's not, repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry. Repentance, metanoia, the thing that John wanted water for, the thing that John wanted washing for, and it's weird because usually it takes a long time to explain biblical (laughs) metaphors to modern people, but like in this instance, we have a much better metaphor than people in the Bible did. Okay? Metanoia is being given a new operating system. It's that all the principles and concepts that made your mind work, that framed your behaviors, that framed your beliefs about things, that framed your way of engaging the world, all those things. Metanoia was the idea that you needed a new mind that replaced your old mind so that you learned to think and act and do in ways that more appropriately aligned with what it is that you were made or what it is that you were called to do. So metanoia is this idea that you're giving a new or a different mind that allows you to see and to connect with the thing that you are made to do in a better way. The translation of repentance is a little weak. The translation of forgiveness is a little weak, not because I don't think forgiveness is important, far from it, but that in being, in repenting, in changing your mind, in encountering this real metanoia in the water, it wasn't just that you didn't, uh, you weren't, you were free from the stain of sin, it's that you were made a new person, that you were given a new way of thinking about and engaging your world. It was more than just getting a pass, it was reorienting who you were. That's what John was calling for in the water, metanoia, conversion, transformation. And the word that we have is forgiveness from sins. It's also a little bit different. The word is aphasim. The Greek word there doesn't really mean forgiveness. You know what it means? It means, well, I'll tell you, here are the other places it's used in Luke. That's a great test. If you want to figure out what a word means, look at where the same author uses it in another place. So this word aphasim, ready? Uh, Luke 4.18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me, dot, 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 to proclaim freedom to the captives, to set the oppressed free. This word aphasim is the word that's translated there as freedom. And later on, or in Luke 1, back in the, uh, 
Zacharias prophecy to John, you child will go before the Lord and prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation by, uh, get to his people by, and what's the word there? Releasing them from their sins. See, the word here, it's so interesting because at least as I grew up in good old-fashioned evangelical community, which praise God for and I love, but the way that we'd think about uh, what the relationship between baptism and repentance and finally uh, freedom from sins is, we would have largely thought about it like in terms of a legal entitlement or obligation that I sinned all the time and then in baptism I'm essentially given a pass from the eternal implications of my sin and therefore the important thing that goes on in being a Christian is that I believe appropriately that I'm sinful and I submit appropriately to who the Lord is and to what the Lord demands of me. But what John is saying here is that is necessary but not sufficient. Because the sufficient condition is that you're transformed. It's that you're renewed. It's that you're made different, not so that you can be saved or not be saved, but so that you can do what it is that God calls you to do in building the kingdom. That's the message that John would have heard and that John's audience would have heard, not just the moralizing kind of vision of repentance is getting you off the hook for the consequences of sin, but rather what John is calling for and what he says Jesus will bring about is a fundamental change of mind that releases you and frees you from the bondage of sin powerful. And here's the thing. Israel had a lot of stories about water. Right? Creation stories about water. Uh, Moses strikes a rock, water comes out of it. It was a means for wiping 99.999% repeated of all life from the earth. But if you are a child of Israel and you hear a story about water, what's the first water story that comes to mind for you? Yeah. Once upon a time, your people were fleeing from bondage. And God pulled back the walls of that water so that your entire nation could walk through it. And then when your enemies were following you, God closed those walls again and wiped them out. See, that, that's what John's talking about here. That's the beautiful thing. John is saying that in Jesus, the new Israel has a possibility of a new exodus. What he's saying is that we're in exile right now. We're in exile because we live subject to the orders of sin and destruction and death and depression and desolation and a bunch of D words that are, you know, I mean, you pile them on. The things are pretty rough right now. And what, what John is saying that Jesus will bring about is that the point is not that Jesus is like, hey, I'm going to make you, your conscience feel better so you can go about business as usual because you won't have eternal penalties for sin. What Jesus is saying is that in the water that I, that I will bring, what John is predicting about the coming of Jesus is that he'll bring a new kind of repentance that will change us, that will make us different that will reorient who we are. And because of that, we will live differently and we will not only be free from sin, not just to save our skin, but to die to ourselves so that we can live into building the kingdom of love so that we can make an exodus from our exile and be made members of a new and perfect Israel. God is once again in John calling his people not only the people of the nation of Israel, but us to leave our captors and to head home through the wilderness. God is calling them and God is calling us like the people of Israel and Egypt to join a new exodus. And that's why there's all the stuff about valleys being filled and hills being laid low. That's why the prophecy in Isaiah was about the escape 
of the nation, the metanoia of John and therefore of Jesus is extended to all people and promises each one of us an exodus from the orders of sin and death and destruction, not just a reprieve from the consequences, but a full release. Here's the thing. You know, for as many times as we've talked about either John or Mary, Mary's my favorite example. Like, Mary sings this song before uh, we looked at it for a little bit before Christmas, and everybody's like, oh, Mary's so sweet. She's like this great 14-year-old girl who loved God and was willing to carry a baby. But the thing is, if you look at Mary's song, it's some nasty stuff. You know, she's, what does she say? In Mary's songs, it says, God has looked on her in her humble state. But then she praises God for dethroning the powerful and exalting the humble, sending the rich away empty-handed and filling up the hungry. For as much sweet, syrupy stuff as we try and pile over Mary, she's predicting a world where all forms of injustice are kind of made right, where the, yeah, the, the folks who are uh, drunk on their own power are humbled. And guess what? That's exactly the same word for humble that John speaks when he talks about metanoia. He's talking about not just literal geographic boundaries. He's talking about a world that is made flat from the influence of orders and sin and death and despair and depression and a world in which and through which we can become released from sin and to be released into a kingdom which is led by the only all-powerful, all-worthy, all-loving, only true, only good king. It's still Christmas on the church calendar. And I've probably tried your patience over the last couple of years with like Christmas is X, Christmas is a declaration of war, it's coronation, it's a, rev- a revolution, but there's one more. Christmas is a bulldozer. The whole point of it is not simply to think or say the right things. It is in encountering Jesus to be given a new mind, to not act in accordance with the law of sin and death, but to act with the law of love and to see yourself and all of us as called out of our exile into an exodus and a new kingdom. And the point is that there may be some hills in the way, there may be some ruts in the road, our roads may go all kinds of weird places, and our job is to lay low every blockage on that road and every barrier to that exodus so that there is a straight path directly to the kingdom and to presence with Christ. And if our view of Christmas and of Christ doesn't cause us to lay some bad stuff low, we're not doing it right. Amen. Uh, questions, conversation, feedback? Anybody? Is there a, can I, Brian, can I borrow one of those pencils? <coughs> Trey, you want to check your blanket and see if I got the Old Testament stuff? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Exodus, and you know, again, there's new creation 
so you know these themes are, are kind of repeated over and over again and so that was really good the way I, I really like the way you connected that I mean John's not coming up with something new John's like this is how God operates yeah. you know and uh, of course this is good for us who aren't Tiberius and, and Annas and Caiaphas but you know our people uh, you know Hillsborough may not exactly be the wilderness but it's not the center of power in the universe you know yeah, this is for, you know, the people in Tatooine, <laughs> not people in Forest Camp. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, that's good. Thank you, Miles, for that. Uh, anybody else? Uh, feedback, corrections, questions, discussion, etc. If not, prayers of the people. What do we have to put on the prayer agenda? God, we thank you for today. I thank you for every person that you've brought to Resurrection Church. I just ask that uh, whoever it is that you call us to be as a congregation that we uh, are open to and informed by and directed by and passionate about and all those things, uh, your will, and uh, help us to be open in heart, mind, being, indeed, to doing the things that you call us to do and to being what you call us to be. We lift up the people of Australia who are suffering from uh, fires and from smoke and all the damage that comes from fires and smoke and all that. We just ask that, um, you know, that you can be present to them, that you can be present in the situation, that you empower folks who are uh, working uh, on your behalf or uh, in direction with your intentions to be effective in helping them. We pray for relief. We pray for peace. We pray that, pray that in some way who you are is made manifest in this tough situation. And we pray the same for uh, all the folks who uh, are either uh, sick or who have even passed away recently connected with resurrection. We just ask, Lord, that you're continuing and that we are a continuing source of your support and your encouragement and your love for people who are struggling with difficult times. Uh, we lift up, um, you know, all the kids and all the adults as we uh, get back to school and to regular schedule from our holiday schedule and just, I don't know, Lord, uh, strike us with... Uh, with the necessity of being and, and doing and acting and thinking differently in the new year so that we can advance your kingdom and put you at the forefront of our minds and of our hearts. We especially pray for resurrection in this new year and new decade that uh, you set us with a ever more uh, passion and commitment to be what you call us to be and to do what you call us to do, Lord, and that, uh, our, our, that we are completely open to and subservient to your will and that our, our goal is to glorify you in being what you've called us to be. We lift all those things up, Lord God, and pray as you've taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.
God, we sit before you silently and just ask that you search our hearts and our minds and our souls. Uh, In this time, we confess to you the places where we have fallen short of what you've called us to do or where we haven't done uh, what you have asked us to do or where we've done things that uh, you you asked us not to do, Lord. We um, reflect all those things to you in our silence and confess them to you and just ask that you show us the places where we are broken and in need of your salvation. So we confess together. Most merciful God, we confess that we are in bondage to sin and cannot free ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us, so we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Amen. those who are helping to do communion, come forward.